Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Until last month, Anthony Coley was Director of Public Affairs at the Justice Department and a senior advisor to Attorney General Merrick Garland. Coley was in the middle of some of the most extraordinary episodes at DOJ over the last two years. The appointment of two special counsels investigating one current and one former president, responding to the drama around the investigation of the president's son, taking incoming from right-wing pundits saying Garland was protecting President Biden, and left-wing pundits saying the attorney general was protecting former President Trump, and occasionally grappling with perhaps the most difficult dilemma that any government official faces. What do you do when you disagree with the boss? The law is the law. Uh, The law is not what we want it to be. The law is the law. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Anthony Coley had a long history in Washington before he went to work for Merrick Garland. He made a name for himself on the Hill and in the Obama administration. I worked for Harold Ford Jr. I worked for Ted Kennedy. I was his last comms director. I worked for Zell Miller twice. In December 2020, when Coley was asked to take the DOJ job, he knew it would be a challenge. Joe Biden had promised to depoliticize the department after the turbulence of the Trump years. Merrick Garland was a political lightning rod who had been punished by Republicans when he was nominated to the Supreme Court by Barack Obama, but was seen as a hero to the left for suffering through that ordeal. Then came January 6th, and then the investigation of Donald Trump for inciting an insurrection, and then the investigation of Hunter Biden, and then the investigation of Donald Trump for retaining classified documents and lying about it, and then President Biden's own classified documents case and then the appointment of not one but two special counsels. And then Republicans took over the House of Representatives. Led by Kevin McCarthy, the GOP has established a committee to investigate, quote, weaponizing the government, unquote. One of its top targets, Merrick Garland's Justice Department. It has been an eventful two years at DOJ. In his first interview since leaving Merrick Garland's side, Coley who joined me from his home on Capitol Hill, discussed how the Justice Department separates law from politics. To break that down, that means at its core, doing the right thing, the right way, for the right reason, time and time and time again. How federal officials like Garland stay mindful of public opinion without letting it influence their decisions. Why the two new special counsels just might take all of the pressure off of Garland and much, much more, including what Coley told Garland when the Attorney General asked him one of the most fraught questions facing any new cabinet member. To tweet or not to tweet. So I've known you a long time. In fact, I was looking at my contacts and uh, it said Anthony Coley, uh, Harold Ford. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. 
still in that my was tw- still in my phone. That was how long ago? Wow, man. Uh, Harold Ford Jr., man, that was 20 years ago when I worked for uh, Ford Jr. Uh, and that was a great experience. As, as soon as I could get back to the Senate side, uh, I, I, I could. Uh, that was I was there for maybe uh, two years, give or take. Uh, and he was a great member to work for. But I vastly preferred uh, the Senate uh, to the House for a variety of reasons. Now, I just say that just to give an indication of one, how long you, you've been uh, yeah. in politics and how long we've known each other. What's the difference f- going from working on Capitol Hill, uh, especially for high profile politicians, partisan uh, uh, politics with Harold, with Miller, and obviously, you know, the, the, the legend S- Senator Kennedy? What is it like yeah. all of a sudden going to the Justice Department where at least, you know, which was so central? to the presidential campaign in terms of we're going to return it to uh, independence. Um, It's not going to be politicized anymore. You know, on your first day, were you given instructions by by the attorney general or others like, hey, it's different over here. Here's what you can and can't do. What what are the differences from a political strategist like yourself going into that high profile role? You're not always able to correct um, factually inaccurate things that appear publicly in real time. You can't always do that at the uh, Justice Department. And I'll give you an example for grand jury rules, for instance. If you, Ryan, or let's just pick on Josh Gerstein from Politico, who is um, our DOJ superstar beat reporter. If Josh Gerstein were to call me and say, hey, I saw some person um, going to a grand jury uh, here's what I'm hearing. He was there for. I, I can't even engage with that. Um, we have rules at the Justice Department, Rule 6C, which deals with grand jury secrecy. Not only can I, as a flack, not engage on that issue, I can't even confirm the mere existence of a grand jury or that a grand jury had been convened in any federal matter. As someone who's in charge of public image, in a sense, how do you address those criticisms because you know if you address one it makes it sound like it potentially could make it sound like you're giving credence to the other um was that something you handled on a day-to-day or yeah so there are a couple things here the one thing this is something i told the attorney general before i left he uh, absolutely should do more um more tv interviews he's done two you should do some more podcasts you gotta get him on the podcast (laughs) <laughs> he will never do a podcast, but uh, I definitely think he should spend some time uh, doing. Yeah, we'll talk after about interviews, and I'll give you. <laughs> uh, but let me let me give you an example of why I think TV is such an effective medium for him. Um, in the summer of last year, um, I went home. I can't remember if it was for Mother's Day or my mother's birthday the next month. Um, But this was prior to the time when we appointed the special counsels. Um, And there was a lot of um, there was um, a lot of uh, chatter uh, in the Twitterverse and uh, in public um, and and other places as well about um, what was taking Merrick Garland so long. 
right? And so I go home, I see my mom, she's in small town, North Carolina, for only gonna be there for 36 hours, 48 hours. I really kinda wanna disconnect from DC, and so I get home, I've been home for five minutes, and my mother says, God bless her, she says, uh, I just wish your man would go ahead and do what he needs to do. <laughs> my man being Merrick Garland, yeah. Trump investigation. Yep. And, you know, I'm knocking my head against the wall like, Ma, come on, not you too, right? <laughs> and, and then some weeks later, he sits for this interview with Lester Holt. And to NBC's credit... Um, the interview lasted um, 10 or 11 minutes. We taped it. I think it was on a Wednesday. Um, I only approached the um, attorney general about doing this interview the, the week before, just the Thursday before. That Wednesday, um, he spent some time with Lester Holt there. And NBC, to their credit, they uh, aired roughly seven and a half minutes. Um, during their 6.30 broadcast on Nightly News. And I see you shaking your head because that is virtually unheard of um, in network television news. Uh, but it gave the country an opportunity to, uh, to see him, to understand his approach to how he um, intends to make sure, in his words, he said on that interview, that everyone, anyone, uh, criminally responsible for the events that happened on January 6th were held accountable. Uh, and it was a wonderful interview. And he's just so authentic um, in those types of settings. So to wrap up the story, my mother calls me after this interview. Uh, and she says, mind you what she said the month before, she, she tells me, she says, I watched, I watched him on uh, NBC Nightly News. She says, your man is like a, he's like a quiet storm. He's the type of person that you don't want to play around with. And so my point in conveying just that one antidote is to your broader question about how do you communicate to the left and to the right about what the Justice Department is up to. He, the department has to continue to use that medium more because even that seven and a half minutes that NBC aired virtually unedited, the people get a chance to see uh, everything that he's about and his approach to the fair administration of justice. Um, and uh, in doing justice, right, we talked a lot at the Justice Department about about doing justice. And uh, to break that down, that means at its core doing the right thing the right way for the right reason, time and time and time again. Uh, and our hope is that the American people uh, would see that that's what Merrick Garland's Justice Department was trying to do. Um, he made a lot of big, controversial, important decisions while you were there. We're going to get into a few of those. Um, but from your perspective, what was the most difficult decision he had to make in his first two years? Well, I'll tell you the one I didn't like, um, E. Jean Carroll. I just, I uh, was remind not a everyone fan of how, the, Yeah, remind everyone. I don't like talking about it, man. Uh, so <laughs> E. Jean Carroll um, had sued the former president um, for some inappropriate um, actions um, prior to his time in office. 
including some comments that he made when he was president that um, were um, arguably defamatory. And the Justice Department um, uh, made a decision that uh, was deeply rooted in the rule of law. Um, and despite how uh, on um, savory those remarks and those comments uh, the former president uh, made, and the department said that in its brief, um, uh, I just didn't like how uh, I just didn't like how that turned out. Now, having said that, I think we all, Ryan, have been a part of organizations um, where things happen that we were not always um, happy with the outcome. Um, but I tell you that story to say, you know, this is something that all of us um, have to do, no matter our industry. Um, you know, if you can uh, be, uh, you can agree with um, a politician, a vote, a politician on 95% of the time, but you don't agree with, with one thing. And so for me, um, uh, the E. Jean Carroll decision um, was one. Um, I understood why how uh, a department came down like it came down in terms of the law is the law. Uh, the law is not what we want it to be. The law is the law. Um, so I think that's all I want to say about that. Uh, just for listeners who don't know the facts, and tell me if I've got this wrong, Anthony. E. Jean Carroll um, alleged that Donald Trump raped her in the 1990s um, during a, a chance meeting in a department store. And he, while he was president, and this allegation uh, uh, became public, uh, condemned her and uh, said some nasty things about her. And she then turned around and sued him for defamation. That case went through the courts. By the time Biden was president, there was an issue that the Justice Department had to take up of, over whether um, President Trump should be defended in a personal capacity. Explain, let me please make sure I got have this right, or in his or the government itself, or as the head of government. And the Biden administration said, uh, government, and then the Biden administration, controversially, and you're saying you disagreed with Merrick Garland in one of the important moments in the uh, in, in the court cases, uh, also came down on on that side of things, which benefited Trump in the in the defamation suit. Is that basically the the narrative there? That's basically the narrative. Yeah, yeah, and that was one. Is, so when something like that happens, what do you... Uh, it's one of those things where at, at its core, um, we don't have a choice right now. Like you can change the law, but right now the law is the law. And the law is not what we want it to be. The, not, the law is not what we aspire for it to be. Um, and yeah. as um, despicable as those actions were, uh, we don't... I think the department's view um, was that there was not um, room there. And so that's one of those things where, you know, I just, I, I wish the law um, read differently. And I think I wish the department was able to take a, um, another position, but it wasn't. Any White House memoir by a press secretary, one of the defining features is their efforts to report inside the building, right? You know, that the press secretaries that really had good relationships with the president, you know, they could go into any meeting, they, they knew everything. 
Others were kind of left out in the cold a little bit because maybe the senior officials thought they were too close to the press, so they didn't want them knowing everything. What was it like for you at the Justice Department? Could you get read in on anything you wanted, or uh, did you have to sort of fight to, 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 and, and report out things that you felt were important to, to do your job? How were you uh, treated? Yeah. So at the right time, um, you know, the public affairs uh, staff, um, primarily myself, were, were brought in on things that um, are public facing. And so that varies um, uh, on a case by case basis. All right, let's talk about some of the yeah. some of the issues that you probably don't want to talk about, but we'll try and. Well, this would be a uh, short conversation, toe. man. We'll tip, short we'll conversation. Tip toe, we'll I'm going to some the, of these. I'm going to I'm going to uh, sell me outside. I am not going to be able to talk about uh, any ongoing criminal investigation in any substantive way. Just lay out for us the evidence against Donald Trump that is likely to show up in a criminal. No, I'm kidding. I know you're not. Gonna talk. <laughs> All right, but let's let's. I know you can. I know you can talk a little bit about the the special counsel um, appointments. Um, and so, Jack Smith uh, was appointed to take over the most politically sensitive uh, yeah. uh, case in the Justice Department. Um, what was, what can you tell us about that decision? So I will tell you, I think Jack Smith, um, was absolutely the right person to take on this assignment. He is a long-term career prosecutor. Uh, he spent significant amount of time in EDNY, that's the Eastern District of New York, primarily Brooklyn, but also other parts of New York, uh, the middle district of Tennessee. Um, he ran the public integrity uh, section of the uh, Justice Department. Um, and then he came back for this uh, one-of-a-kind assignment. Uh, I think two things that I think I will say about the special counsel appointment in Jack's tenure. I think Jack's appointment will allow the investigation to speed up even more. Uh, and that's primarily because under the regs, um, the special counsel um, does not is not subject to the day to day supervision um, of any official of the department. So it's not mother may I, father may I on every single action. Uh, and so he has. So it's a sort of frictionless investigation compared to other prosecutors. Yeah. Well, he has extraordinary latitude. Uh, to um, run the investigation um, in a way that is consistent with um, department norms and practices and consistent with the justice manual. So I think because he has that latitude, uh, it will cause the, these investigation to, uh, to continue apace. And he says as much um, in his uh, one and only statement uh, he's issued uh, at the start of his tenure. Um, but the second thing I think is worth making, the second point, is that any decision that he makes with regard to the Trump investigation uh, will ultimately be uh, the final decision. And why do I say that? Uh, because the regs say that um, the attorney general may um, ask for um, uh, the special counsel to provide an explanation of uh, any investigative or prosecutorial step. Um, and he may conclude that 
uh, a step is inappropriate or unwarranted under established regs. Um, and so there's an out there. But knowing who Jack Smith is and that he came up through the department, um, I strongly suspect that uh, whatever he decides uh, to do in the course of this investigation will be what the department does. Is There's just an extraordinarily high standard um, for uh, Mary Garland to, um, to, uh, to not do what the special counsel has concluded, according to the recs. Even though at the end of the day, he does have to officially sign off on whatever that is, right? See, this is what I'm saying. That's not what the recs say. They don't. He- the regs say that the attorney general may conclude that uh, inaction is so inappropriate or unwarranted under established apartment guidelines that they should not be pursued. But the regs do not say that the attorney general um, has to sign off um, and essentially green light. So my point is, and this Got is it. the beauty of appointing a special counsel, in that it gives the public more confidence um, that we are doing justice. And this goes back to what I said the earlier, doing justice, doing the right thing the right way uh, for the right reason over and over and over again. And who knows what Jack Smith is going to decide. Um, the other thing that's important, not just with the special counsel investigation, but um, I saw this throughout the department, um, is prosecutors Career prosecutors at the Justice Department don't begin their investigations with the end in mind. I see them time and time again. They follow the facts. They look at the law and they go wherever the facts and the law dictate. And that's what I think the American people uh, would want at this uh, moment in American history uh, as it relates to the Justice Department. Just as, a, as an outsider observing what we all can see in, in the press related to this case do you think this is sort of on a glide path to some kind of indictment or are you skeptical of that? So it's an ongoing investigation, so I'm not going to say a lot. Uh, I will say my mother asked me uh, this question uh, a lot. I think we need to get your mother day, on the podcast to get the real you should, answers. Oh my gosh. She, she, my friends called her Miss Olivia. She would be wonderful. Your listeners would absolutely love her. Um, I think honestly, there are very few people who know the current state of, um, Jack Smith's investigations. Um, and that's, um, that's appropriate. And I think, um, you know, I could give you an answer. Um, and there are tons of people around uh, town, former federal prosecutors, uh, who could give you an answer based on what they see publicly. But the truth of the matter is that um, only a handful of, of, of people, maybe two handful of people know the current uh, state of the investigation. And that is how it should be. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. One final thing on the special counsel was, is there anything you could tell us about the process and the decision and um, whether it was 
a wrenching, difficult decision, uh, a no-brainer. Um, and uh, what was the what what put Jack Smith at the head of the line over other candidates for that job? You know, this is. Um, uh, yeah, I love that. I love this question. This reminds me of a question that um, Josh Gerstein um, asked the attorney general in one of his first press availabilities um, after the special counsel appointment. <laughs> I, I, I can't help but laugh. <laughs> Did he help and, you? Did he help you and, come and, up with these and reveal literally <laughs> that Gerstein texted me this question? <laughs> <laughs> before, right before the interview, and I asked him if he had any questions. So I'm not going to take credit for it. This was from Josh Gerstein. Was it really? Was it really? Oh, it see, sure was. See, I know it. I know it. I know it. Look at that, That's so man. funny. Well, I'm a little now. I'm a little annoyed that he asked score, this question. Man. But I know my press score. I, I, I was hoping he could come up so with something here, original. No, no. So, but it sounds like Josh. Um, so here's what I, I'm going to answer this another way. Here's what I love about the DOJ press corps is that the DOJ press corps was always looking for new and innovative ways to, um, to, to ask questions. And so they would ask them in very smart ways, just like you just asked or Josh asked via you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Josh asked uh, the attorney general uh, in November of last year. Uh, very smart question. He says, Mr. Attorney General, did you, did you meet with Jack Smith? Wonderful question, right? It's not, you know, are you going to indict, you know, whomever? It's, did you meet with Jack Smith? And the answer is, yeah, he did. He met with Jack before the appointment and the attorney general answered that question. And um, that just gave the DOJ press corps. It was a, it was a smart question uh, because it gave them more data than they had before. Another one of your favorite subjects, um, Hunter Biden. Oh, yeah. So what is all right. We have two special counsels now. Um, why not a third for, for the Hunter Biden situation, considering it's another politically uh, messy controversy. Help us understand when a, a special counsel is warranted versus when it's not. Well, I think in the, the two special counsels that we have, um, you know, you've got one looking into um, the uh, current president's handling of documents with classified markings um, and uh, another special counsel um, looking into the former president's handling of markings with classified documents, as well as uh, January 6th related items. Uh, the former president has announced that he is uh, running for uh, president. The current president says he intends to run for president. So I think if you just isolate those two statements, um, it makes sense um, to take this out of the normal process at the Justice Department and put it in the hands of special prosecutors, um, special counsels, uh, to make sure that things are handled absent the day-to-day -day oversight of department officials, like I just mentioned. Um, and it also gives, I think, the public a level of um, confidence that the investigations are handled appropriately. I, I think with um, the other matter that you mentioned in Delaware. Hunter Biden, uh, you can say it. It's okay. 
<laughs> uh, I mean, that we all particular know, he's, matter. You know, he's being investigated by the Justice Department. There's no, there's no secret. Specifically, <laughs> specifically by the U.S. Attorney uh, in uh, Delaware, and this is an investigation that began under the previous administration. And what I think um, the Justice Department smartly did under this administration um, was to uh, allow Mr. Weiss to stay on to continue his work um, in that investigation. And I think that was the appropriate thing to do. Uh, Who knows where he's going to land on uh, this investigation? My hope is that whatever he decides to do with this case is that he uh, makes it clear that his action is um, consistent with how similar cases have been handled. Do you think it's important that he communicates um, the reasoning behind a decision one way or the another? Another um, when you don't, when you decline to indict, um, usually you stay silent. James Comey famously um, held a press conference because he th- he thought it was you know he was the FBI director at the time. He thought it was important for the American people to understand the decision behind the Hillary emails case. A lot of people yeah. thought that was inappropriate in hindsight. Some people, I think, sure. still defend it as, as important. This is a question right in your lane. Is it important for um, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware to explain its reasoning, whether they go forward with uh, charges or not? So I think it's important that whatever they decide to do, and none of us know what they're going to do, but whatever they decide to do, it's important to explain how um, their action is consistent with how other actions, um, other cases have been handled. Having said that, um, there, it doesn't always have to come from them. There is uh, public data that is available um, that could also help um, underscore um, why they took the actions that they took or didn't take. Um, and oh, I so think, what, uh, what should we be looking for? What, what should, I, should I be setting a pacer alert for, uh, for something specific? What, what do you mean? Astro buddy, Josh Gerstein. <laughs> There's a, a commonly a public filing one way or the other that would explain the reasoning. So I don't, I, you know, I, again, I, I'm going to talk in generalities right now okay. uh, and not uh, specifically about any one particular investigation. Um, I think uh, on matters where there is, um, where there is um, a lot of public interest, um, it is helpful to, um, to find a way to communicate to the public. Uh, and that can be via public filings. Um, may not make sense for a public filing, uh, or it could be via public data. One of the most fascinating things about your former boss, Merrick Garland, is the ringer of the Supreme Court process that, that he went through. Did you ever talk to him about what that was like? Rarely. Rarely. What is so interesting, though, is that... There's this caricature of Merrick Garland that he was cloistered in a judicial chamber for 24 years. And uh, he doesn't um, 
appreciate the um, political environment in which we currently find ourselves. And I think that doesn't accurately describe who he is. For all of us on this Supreme Court uh, matter, we all um, looked at it. And I think any fair minded person uh, would say he, at the very least, should have had a hearing. Um, I would have argued he should have had a vote. Um, But he lived that. This wasn't theoretical for him. Um, And I think he understands the political environment intimately because of that. He isn't driven by politics, but I think he understands um, the political environment in ways that people don't always appreciate. And then, Anthony, one other question that I hope you can uh, speak a little freely about, and that is, this covering this administration is fascinating because we have a White House that is very um, buttoned up. Um, I was talking to some people the other day about how some of Joe Biden's top, top aides would not even be recognizable to some of the top Washington reporters. Some people couldn't pick yeah. Mike Donilon and Steve Reschetti out of a lineup. Um, yeah. We haven't had any of the sort of... Um, palace intrigue drama that um, is present in every White House, every administration, whether it becomes yeah. public or not. Um, it's, very, it's hard even to sort of identify the two ideological poles at the, at the top of the White House. Like who's the, you know, who's the leading moderate, who's the leading liberal. I mean, you know, some people doing some of the legislative drama, they would point to Reschetti versus Klain. But a lot of those traditional, um, inside stories really haven't been written uh, in the first two years. And I, I find it incredible having covered, uh, you know, the, the, the White House going back to the, the Clinton era. Um, it's, it's, it's very, very different. Um, can you shed any insight into the power dynamics at the, at the top of the White House? Um, you know, I can't, man. Listen, my, what's so interesting is uh, I had very limited interaction with uh, my colleagues at the White House during my tenure at DOJ. Um, we had a very um, strict White House contacts policy um, where we just um, didn't talk to the White House um, on criminal and investigative stuff. On policy matters, of course, uh, we talked to um, White House comms um, as appropriate, but we had a very limited. I mean, even on the day of the special counsel appointment, um, they didn't know that the Justice Department is going to announce a special counsel. They didn't know that. Um, I mean, I sent out the my team sent out the press advisory for that announcement around 10, 15 or so the morning of the announcement with the simple notice that the Justice Department is uh, the attorney general is going to make a statement. Um, they didn't get that advisory um, uh, ahead of time. Right. And so it's just a very different uh, structure. I had uh, very limited contact with the with the White House. Um, so, uh, I think it's interesting, man, uh, this perspective, I hadn't heard that, uh, before, but I, I take your point. Uh, no, this discipline it's, it's, isn't a bad thing though. I mean, it makes, well, report, yeah, from it your makes reporters, sure. job, it makes reporters <laughs> jobs, uh, harder, but you know, I'm all for message discipline. So listen, uh, this has been a referring- great conversation, man. 
No, it, it has. And um, a final question on that. Um, yeah. Tell us, how did you get this job? This is a very sensitive job, obviously. Yeah. Um, during the Trump years, the Justice Department uh, was politicized. One of President Biden's promises was to restore the independence of the Justice Department. I don't remember you as like a big Biden uh, you know, person during the campaign. How did you come to that position at the Justice Department? Uh, as every great story starts, I was just minding my own business, Ryan. Got a call in December of 2020 from the transition uh, team. Anita Dunn gave me a call and uh, asked me if I would be interested in running uh, public affairs at the department. And I politely declined. Uh, oh, really? You and, said no to Anita? Yeah, wow. I, I did. Uh, and, uh, if you know, Anita, you know, that she, um, is a wonderful person to, to, to deal with. Uh, she, uh, also, uh, called back. Uh, she is not one to, uh, easily give up when she feels like something, uh, could, uh, could work. And, uh, she, and I listened more the second time. And, uh, I told her if the president elect, chose somebody like Mary Garland, uh, I would have a conversation with him. And then so a couple things happened. This was maybe the third week of December, uh, 2020. And uh, in the prior month, uh, a group of us, uh, when I say us, I mean kind of black communicators in Washington, uh, people like Jamal S Simmons, Ashley Etienne, uh, Melanie Rousseau. We had a conversation with um, with Anita and with Saki and with Kate Bedingfield as they were trying to identify top tier uh, talent uh, to join the administration in uh, communications roles. Uh, we wanted to be helpful to them, help them kind of surface names of people that we knew who were either uh, ready to lead communications, black and brown people who were uh, ready to lead communications either uh, at, at a federal agency or in the White House, uh, or who were that next level down, right? This is creating the, the pipeline. Um, so at the DAS level or the, um, or the special assistant level. So I, we had this conversation with them in November and then pass, fast forward. I get the call in December. It's like, oh, your, your name wasn't on this list. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, and so the other thing that happens, I tend to at the end of every, uh, calendar year. I tend to try to spend some time uh, just reflecting on the year that was and kind of charting out my priorities and what I want to accomplish out, out of the next period of time. And so that period in December, I was, I'm from North Carolina and I rented a house on the Outer Banks in, uh, in December, which if you've never gone to the beach uh, in uh, the wintertime is actually not a bad um, thing to do. I'm not sure Ryan, if you've ever been to the beach during winter, but uh, it's not, it's not, it's not, <laughs> not bad. Purpose. Uh, it's really quiet. It's really quiet. So I did some reflection during that period and I'll speed the story up. Uh, um, and I thought back to a period of time, kind of three weeks, three years earlier, when I lost my hearing for a year, uh, for a week. What? Oh, no. Um, really? It, yeah. And this uh, is a medical phenomenon called uh, sudden hearing loss. And in uh, roughly half of the people who lose their hearing for a period of time, uh, roughly half of them don't get it back. 
And uh, it was one of those things at this time, I'm, you know, 40 ish. And I never had that type of medical challenge before. And it's one of those things that kind of struck me to my core. Um, And, you know, I made a promise to myself then at the other end of that. Um, if I could use um, my time and whatever talent I had to do some good, I wanted to do that. And so all of that was circulating in my mind in December of 2020 when I got the call from the transition team. And so um, that was December 2020. January uh, 6th happened right thereafter. And you just pointed out, um, I kind of grew up professionally on Capitol Hill. I worked for Harold Ford Jr. I worked for uh, Ted Kennedy. I was his last comms director. Uh, I worked for Zell Miller twice. Uh, really had a great experience with uh, Senator Miller. And it really kind of broke my heart. And where I'm taping this now from my kitchen uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, and so I live on the Hill. I worked on the Hill. And it just really affected me in profound ways to see um, the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Um, and on the 7th, that's when President-elect Biden announced uh, that Merrick Garland would be uh, his nominee to lead the Justice Department. Uh, and he and I had a conversation that week. Uh, we did not know each other. Uh, and we just really, really uh, hit it off. He asked me, uh, and we just had an incredible rapport immediately. Um, but I remember if there was any one moment where I, I realized that uh, he and I were going to get along well, he asked me about whether or not he should have a Twitter handle. Some of the people were encouraging him to have a Twitter handle. And I told him some version of uh, every communication strategy tactic must be rooted in authenticity. <laughs> um, and there are benefits to it, but it's got to be authentic to who you are. And you could just kind of see his eyes like uh, br um, brighten up when I said that. Uh, he is not the type of person who... Uh, <laughs> wants a Twitter handle and he, he he hasn't had one as attorney general so I was with him for two years so and it was an incredible you didn't experience. recommend and you did not as a communications professional you said no don't worry about it you don't have to do it yeah pretty much pretty much um, and you know you gotta you gotta do what's what's authentic and what's what's real and um I think that's why people respond to him so well when he does um, these TV interviews. He's only done two. Um, you know, he sat with Pierre Thomas um, uh, in his first year, right after his first 100 days. Uh, and then in July of last year, he sat with Lester Holt. And the uh, response that we um, got to that was overwhelming is because uh, people got a chance to see who he is and how he thinks and authenticity. You, you, you can't just, you can't manufacture that. And, and that's what he has. Anthony, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. Today marks the one year anniversary of Russia's war in Ukraine. The war broke out after months of rising tensions and concern in the United States, Europe, and among NATO allies. It's arguably been President Biden's biggest foreign policy test. 
It's been Europe's first major land war since World War II, coming after months of warnings from U.S. and other Western officials. To tell the story behind this monumental conflict, Politico magazine has written the definitive oral history of the war. We spoke to some of the West's top leaders, such as Secretary of State Antony Blinken. There was a moment at the the end of the the intervention where um, I thought it was important to really, once and for all, in front of the entire world as represented uh, at the Security Council, put the Russian representative on the spot with a very simple uh, question. Um, Can you say unequivocally that Russia will not invade? And Liz Truss, former UK Prime Minister and earlier the British Foreign Secretary. It was my view then, and it's still my view now, that Putin made a massive miscalculation, that he misunderstood how united the free world would be. It is a great piece of journalism, so please head over to politico.com to read it. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Amant is Politico's executive producer of audio. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Thank you to Joe Dobkin for field producing today in New York. Please subscribe to Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you.